Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 22nd, 2007. This week, episode 42 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, the Z-Man. <laughs> the Z-Man. Good afternoon, Cliff. Good to be back here in the studio. And of course, cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick, CJ. <laughs> Not again. Yes, I'm here. Uh, Sorry. All right. It's your equipment anyway. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Um, you can also now check us out at www.iaqradio.com. You also can get IAQ console credits for emailing us and getting a quiz for the show. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz, Kent Berg of NIDS Training, Steve Sauer of IE Connections with What's News, and the EMS Sales Gang, Jay Rucker, Michael Knight, Connie Young, and we've got Johnny Jordan Jr. here today, too, so we're going to have a great time with that group. And, of course, we'll finish up with the roundup, bring everybody back in. Hopefully, uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, will join us here later. I don't see him on the line yet, but we hope to have him on in just a moment. Let's go over our sponsors real quick, CJ. Yes, we would like to thank our sponsors for, for IAQ Radio. Microband Systems, the microbial management company, on the web at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising ava- and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. You can find them on the web at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Dot com j-o-n-d-o-n dot com and and to contact the show live by phone or text message simply go to www.talkshoe t-a-l-k-s-h-o-e dot com and follow the instructions to get your pin number our show id is 1547 we also appreciate suggestions or will answer questions take requests if you email us at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff slotnick at CS uh, at unsmoke, U-N-S-M-O-K-E dot com, or simply post questions on the IAQ Radio forums at iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. 
www.cliffcentral.com. And now I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Sorry to report that there were no correct answers to last week's microband trivia question. Zach, the envelope, please. This week, we'll put two new trivia questions into play. The trivia questions for Friday, June 22, 2007, come from the fields of forensic crime scene investigation and mortuary science. Question one. In a temperate climate and in ordinary soil, how long will it take an unembalmed adult body buried six feet deep without a coffin to decompose fully to a skeleton? Question two. What famous person did Thomas McMahon, spelled M-C-M-A-H-O-N, murder, and what forensic evidence led to his conviction? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Two good ones. Uh, by the way, I, maybe the reason we haven't gotten an answer is that uh, we now have a new way of answering. CJ, do you want to review that? Is it on forums? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, simply go to ieqradio.com. At the top of the page, uh, underneath the logo, you will see a number of links. One of them is marked forums. Just click on that link, sign up for a username and password, and answer the question. Could also be that it was just a doggone tough question there. It could also be that too, Joe. <laughs> it probably could. Yeah, I did himself on that one last I week. I think so too. All right, we've got a little intro music for our first guest, and then uh, Cliff will do the introduction. Rich folks are born with a silver spoon. I was born with a silver fish. And it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Roll your sleeves up and you get down to it. Play some music, you're a working slot, and it's a dirty job. All right, our first guest this afternoon is pretty familiar with dirty jobs. He's Kent Berg, and he is with NIDS Training. NIDS stands for the National Institute of Decontamination Specialists. For new listeners, that's the uh, acronym police. Correct. <laughs> NIDS provides students throughout the United States and abroad with training programs that address the latest techniques in specialty decontamination. NIDS training programs on crime and trauma scene cleanup, methamphetamine lab cleanup, disease outbreak, response, bioterrorism, radiation spills, and hospital-acquired infections. They have a freestanding facility, and with its comfortable classrooms, highly qualified instructors, and custom-designed hands-on scenarios, allows students to be fully immersed in the experience of specialty decontamination. Using all of their senses while actually working to decontaminate various scenes makes all the difference in preparing for the challenges they will encounter in the real world. With us today is Kent Berg, director of NIDS. He has a very deep background in emergency medical services and specialized training in weapons of mass destruction, crime scene investigation, emergency response to terrorism, toxicology of chemical warfare agents, and clandestine lab cleanup. He is instructor trainer in bloodborne pathogens, respiratory protection, emergency vehicle operations. Kent is also the president of BioCare Inc., a biohazard remediation firm. Good afternoon, Kent. 
What got Hi, you? Hi, There you go. Good. Okay. Good. It's what, an honor to be here. Good. What got you interested or attracted you to provide these types of specialty services? Well, back in 1996, I was working as an assistant director of emergency medical services here in Greenville, and I read a newspaper article about a, a company who was providing what they called crime scene cleanup, which was completely foreign to me. And I read the article, and it went on to describe that they cleaned up the blood and tissue and so forth following trauma, decomposed bodies and so forth. And I thought, this has got to be the worst job in the world. Who in the world would actually want to do this? And uh, I put the article down, and a couple of days later, I happened to be meeting with our local coroner. And I said, hey, by the way, who, who does this crime scene cleanup stuff around here? And he said, what are you talking about? He said, we don't, I've never heard of such a thing. I said, well, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of horrible scenes and, and just, you know, drove away, you know, with the patient and uh, never gave a second thought to what was left behind. And he said, well, you know, uh, the family has to clean it up or, or the business owner has to clean it up. And if we feel, you know, especially... Uh, concern, you know, for them will help when we can, but you know, it's, there's really no type of business like that. Well, I went back to my regular job, and for the next couple of weeks, that's all I could think of, was all these horrible scenes I'd seen, and that families had to clean it up. So, uh, I started doing research, and uh, I found some companies around the country that, uh, that were starting the same kind of business. I could only find about a dozen. And of uh, that dozen, six said, well, let's get together. And so I set up a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee in late 96. We, uh, we met, we exchanged information, and we decided to form an association. And, and is, that, uh, is that the um, ABRA, Kent? It is. That's the oh. American Bio Recovery Association. They didn't get me. I got past that speed trap on the acronym. American Bio Recovery Association. You just find it. <laughs> That's an automatic exoneration. All right. And uh, you were the first president of that organization? I was. Actually, I was, yes. And uh, from that and the exchange of information, myself and several other companies got started, and uh, we've been we've been doing it ever since. And you still currently own or operate one of these types of businesses, and you're actually providing these services today. Is that correct? Every day, yes. Interesting. And Cliff, did you? Sure. You know, from your perspective, Kent, how does the training that you do and your organization does differ from training that would be provided by other industry training providers? Well, I, I, I think that the advantage that we have is that being part of the association, our training, training center uh, is kind of a clearinghouse for all the research that not only we have done, but uh, re- research and experience of, of our members from all over the world. And we compile that and put together a program that I, I, I think is it's the culmination of, of years and years of, of experience from, from all these, these different providers. And then we put it into a program that is, is really intensive and has the hands-on component where not only do we teach them 
how to do things. We also teach them why they do it, the science behind it, so they can make informed decisions. And when when situations change, they can change with it and know why they're changing. Then they can do the hands-on, and we put them through a rigorous hands-on program where we actually have simulated rooms that represent different rooms in a house and business uh, where we have suicides, homicides, and even a decomposed body scenario. So when they come out of this class, uh, they it's like they've actually already started the business. They've al- they already have several cleanups under their belts. How do you prepare these rooms for these cleanups? Well, actually, uh, we've had to uh, get a permit to use animal blood, and we use pig blood. Uh, the state health department uh, helped us procure that, and uh, we use pig tissue. Uh, we use some things that we actually buy from the grocery store as well as far as some tissue and, and, and meat and bone. And we set up these scenarios just as realistically as we possibly can. And if I took a picture of our scene and a picture of a real scene, uh, you would not be able to tell, tell the difference. As far as the odors and the decomposed component, we actually do cultivate um, meat. We'll put it in a, in a container, and we will, we will expose it to the elements. We have holes cut in it so flies have access to this meat, and after sitting out for about two and a half weeks, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> and, and, and it's got visitors, okay. uh, little crawly visitors that we also put in just to make it as realistic as possible. You know, when they can pass this, they can they can they can do it in the real world. When, when you're doing this bloodborne pathogen training, what quality control or quality assurance or validation methods do you use? Well, <laughs> um, you, you're not going to like this. <laughs> we may love it. <laughs> when I when I when I teach these guys, and also when I with my own technicians on scenes. Uh, I use what what I call the lick test. Okay. Now, before your imagination goes wild, okay. they don't actually lick the surface. But the, what we teach them is, you work this this surface, this item, and you clean it and apply disinfectants until, in your mind, you would be willing to lick it. Okay. Hmm. And if they if they can do that. Uh, we know that they've they've done a, a good job on it. Now, of course, we do have a piece of equipment that we do go behind them and actually test surfaces for cleanliness. Would that be so, ATP? Uh, actually, it is. Okay. Um, it's a um, aluminometer. Um, are you familiar uh, with ATP? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, but I'm not necessarily sure that our listeners are, so if you could just you know, right. explain what it is. Okay. Um, the device we use is called a, a luminometer, and it's based on bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is basically the chemical reaction we see as light coming from lightning bugs. Uh, we use a disposable swab that's based in a, in a chemical like that that's found in lightning bugs. It produces light when it comes into contact with ATP. ATP is 
adenosine triphosphate. And it's a chemical found in all living cells. So when this chemical comes into contact with, with cells, it actually generates a glow. Now, we swab a surface with this chemical. We place the swab into the luminometer, and it reads the amount of light produced by the reaction. Um, and it displays this, uh, this amount of light in units of bioluminescence. The more biological contamination there is uh, on a surface, uh, the higher reading on the meter. And as a matter of fact, this spice is so sensitive, it, it can measure down to as few as 100 bacterial cells on a surface. And the, the, the whole, the whole uh, test takes less than a minute. And it's a tremendous tool for us to test the effectiveness of our students, as well as our technicians in the field. Case and dismissed. I, <laughs> I, I believe we're the, probably the first and only crime and trauma scene training center and probably the only technicians in the field that actually have, have uh, applied ATP in this, this type of uh, scenario. Yeah, my experiences that came initially out of the food industry and was used to monitor uh, cleanliness in food preparation areas, if I'm not mistaken. And you're right, exactly. Okay. And we've taken that just another step and, and found a new niche for it. Kent, on your uh, website you have photos of, of workers using other various uh, meters and instruments um, I assume some of these are for the methamphetamine-type cleanup, et cetera. What are these specialized instruments, and uh, why are they being used? Well, I, I think you're referring to, uh, actually, there are um, two types of um, testing devices that are uh, on the website. And uh, one is a, a pH meter. Uh, we use that to test uh, unknown spills. And uh, to determine whether whether they're acidic or alkaline, uh, and mostly on meth labs where, is where we use this. So we find uh, spills that we don't really know what we're dealing with. So we'll use that pH meter to de determine the pH. And then we can use chemicals on our truck to neutralize the spill prior to cleanup. Um, the, other, the other device is a, is a combination photoionization detector and multi-gas meter. Uh, we also use that uh, in our meth lab uh, cleanup program. And, and of course, uh, what we do with that is we want to sample the air uh, in a building for volatile organic compounds and toxic gases prior to going in, and then also while we're in to, uh, to actually sniff uh, drains and plumbing and drain fields for explosive flammable or toxic gases or vapors. I see. So that's, that's very helpful. Now, um, what are the chemicals that are commonly found on these crime scenes? I mean, I, I'm not that familiar with the meth lab, you mean? Oh, in the meth labs, I'm sorry. Okay. What, were they um, use, what, what chemicals are being used to manufacture this stuff? Wow. Well, um, let's see. Uh, the retraction of making meth is the fact that it can be made with basic household chemicals found in retail stores, and and, and you follow a, a simple recipe. What makes meth so easy and at the same time so dangerous is that 
so many chemicals can be substituted in the recipe. But basically, you need pseudoephedrine cold capsules, phosphorus, acid, iodine, um, lithium, and uh, for some recipe versions, you need anhydrous ammonia. Uh, you can make meth with elaborate laboratory-grade glassware, or you can, you can make it in a soda bottle. Uh, you can make it in large quantities for distribution, or, or you can just fire up enough to feed today's habit. But, uh, but most of the chemicals you need can be found in our garages and under our kitchen counters, like fingernail polish, brake cleaner, camping fuel, butane fuel, um, road flares, rubbing alcohol, you know, why patch packs, lithium batteries, concrete cleaner. Wow. And can you imagine putting all that together and, and shooting it in your arm? <laughs> Whoa. What a wow. soup. You know, it, it, are, yeah. the, is the, are the hazards posed by meth residue that's in, in the building, by the chemicals that are there, by spills of these chemicals, or all of the above? Actually, all of the above. Fortunately, um, the hazmat contractors that, that come in remove the bulk chemicals. And what we're left to deal with it is the residues. So we're dealing with uh, lower levels of, of, uh, of hazards, but they're still there. And certainly we have to protect ourselves, both uh, respiratory protection as well as um, our, our skin. And there's always that possibility that somebody's overlooked a booby trap or, or bulk chemicals somewhere or even a tank of anhydrous ammonia hidden somewhere. So we have to be you know, on alert all the time, even though the bulk chemicals are removed. But spills and chemicals and residues and, and, and waste products behind are all things that we have to deal with. Kent, we had talked a little bit about this um earlier when I talked to you earlier in the week, and that was the fact that, you know, you do the specialized training, the specialized training on the cleanup, just like you explained, but you also recommend, as I recall, that people get uh, HAZWOPER training. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, the thing with our uh, all our training is that we, you know, we do specialize in the core elements of, of the training, but we do tell all our students, uh, that there are a number of other things that you need to be trained in. Uh, certainly, Haswopper is great for anything you do in this industry, uh, but certainly uh, it's a requirement for, for meth lab uh, cleanup. And then uh, training in asbestos, uh, lead paint, and all the OSHA uh, programs, in, in the, the small ones like slips, trips, and falls, and and, uh, and ladder safety and so forth, and, but also confined space, lockout, tagout, hand and power tool safety, and you know, on and on. Now, some of these we include in our courses, uh, respiratory protection, bloodborne pathogens, and then we do some awareness uh, programs as part of this in things like lockout, tagout, and so forth. But certainly, there are a number of other courses that, that add to their professionalism, their compliance, and their overall knowledge. Now, Kent, in some states, I understand, such as Colorado, there are actually rules and regulations with respect to meth lab cleanup. Um, 
have any of these states with these laws approved or endorsed your course, or would you do that down the road? How do you handle that? Actually, uh, the National Institute of Decontamination Specialists is preparing to submit our programs to Washington State, Arizona, and Colorado to get feedback. Uh, we don't anticipate any problems because we incorporated their requirements into our program. And even where there were differing views between the states, we incorporated each element as options in our protocols. So um, as the students learn, they learn that there are, there are variances in, uh, from state to state and what they are and how they can, they can meet those requirements. So uh, I don't think we're going to have any problem, but as of yet, no, we haven't submitted formally. I see. Now, I, I didn't really uh, ask you about this earlier, but I'm just curious, are there other states that you're aware of, and if you don't know, just, you know, just no comments, fine, that are in the process of developing these same types of regulations? Oh, certainly. Um, many states are uh, around the country, and we, we hear about more all the time. Uh, I think there's about 24 states right now that are implementing at least some, some regulations and uh, more jumping on board. Uh, North Carolina, for instance, uh, our neighbor to the north, just, uh, just implemented uh, a, a very nice program. But uh, what we find is a lot of these states are, are uh, piggybacking off of the research from, from the first ones, like Washington State and Arizona. So um, they're, they're coming together uh, pretty cohesively, and you're seeing pretty much the same things, the same requirements from state to state, which is good. But I understand the federal government also, uh, EPA, is putting together a program. So we're waiting to see. We've seen some drafts, but we haven't seen a final product yet. Yeah, I'd like to change subjects, Kent. Other than a rare okay. case of food poisoning uh, on a cruise ship, it seems that all we hear about is norovirus and Norwalk-like virus. And was this always around, or was it just overlooked before? <laughs> Well, it, it's probably always been around, but it wasn't really identified and named until I think somewhere in the like the late 1960s or the early 1970s, uh, uh, when the virus was first recognized from an outbreak of gastrointestinal illness in an elementary school in Norwalk, Ohio, uh, and that's how it got its name originally. It, it became the Norwalk virus. Uh, then change later on to the norovirus, but before that, it was it was simply known as the winter vomiting disease. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, in, in in the past thirty years or so, scientists believe that norovirus has flourished and is becoming more prominent uh, both on land and sea. And the problem with norovirus is, you know, most most viruses are pretty brittle or fragile, and they don't last long in the environment. But norovirus can can survive on surfaces for at least a couple of weeks at a time and and can survive temperatures high temperatures like 140 degrees fahrenheit hmm. which means it's this is a hardy bug and finding and killing all of it on say a cruise ship is really you know it's not very likely so there's a good chance that the next group of passengers have the potential you know to become infected if you're not really thorough you know, both Joe and I travel a lot on airplanes, and I never hear about these types of viruses being transmitted on airplanes. And, you know, you've got millions of people traveling every day, or is it just we don't hear about it? Well, it's probably a bigger problem 
I would, and, and this is personal opinion, but I, I think it's probably a bigger problem than cruise ships. It's just not an identified one. And what I mean is, you know, norovirus is transmitted through the fecal-oral route and by vomiting. People get sick and don't wash their hands, and they transmit contamination from the hands to surfaces. Then other people touch those surfaces and pick up the contamination on their hands and touch other surfaces in their mouths and so on and so on. And you can see how how fast this could spread through an aircraft where people are packed in like sardines and unlike ships that have individual bathrooms in the, you know in, in each stateroom uh, where people vomit and have diarrhea and so forth from norovirus on aircraft it, it's common bathrooms so one ill person could essentially contaminate a, a large portion of the plane simply by contaminating the bathroom and touching seat backs on their way back to their seat uh, and every person that subsequently uses that bathroom has the potential for exposure and transmitting that exposure. If there's vomiting on the aircraft, you know, that produces aerosols that can be carried by air currents through the plane and its HVAC system. And I think the reason you don't hear about aircraft norovirus is because it takes 24 to 36 hours for the disease to show symptoms. So by the time air passengers get sick, it's been two or three days, and those that are exposed are now distributed all over the country and probably don't even realize where they picked up the virus. So, you know, on a, on a cruise ship, everybody's confined there for weeks. So it's showing up and people getting sicker and, and transmitting it and more people getting sicker. But you're on a plane for a short period of time. You pick up the disease, you leave the plane, you get sick a couple of days later, and you may not even realize that you're one of 50 people on the plane that are now sick. You know, because you you know they don't track that. Kent, before we go, um, I, I think Cliff had a, a comment or a question on a chemical R and D sure. project. Yeah, sure. What I had that? a selfish question for you. As a chemical manufacturer, I'm always looking for suggestions uh, for gaps or niches, you know, for products that don't exist. And I suspect that you run into some strange stuff. Uh, what do you need products for that? you don't have products for now, or where can they be improved? Well, um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, we're really all about biological contamination, and, and the CDC, Centers, uh, watch out for this, watch uh, out, <laughs> Centers for Disease Control <laughs> right. says that new diseases are emerging and old diseases are mutating faster than ever before. Um, books are being written, written warning of the potential for planet-wide plagues, and, and, and of course, avian flu is lurking on the horizon. What we need is an antimicrobial that's an Environmental Protection Association, uh, 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 I'm sorry, an EPA list, uh, list B tuberculoside that has a very short dwell time, has a residual kill ability that doesn't leave toxic residue or, or film that's visible or tacky. And if you can do that, um, I'll be your customer for life. All right. <laughs> Hell, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kent, before we go, are there any, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add or uh, anything you'd like to bring up that we uh, didn't touch on today? Just that uh, we're... We're really honored to be here, and, and and certainly with your connections with the other organizations 
like RIA and IICRC and, and uh, uh, Duck Cleaning Association and, and, and all of those, uh, we're, ju- we're just happy to be uh, considered, you know, uh, uh, among those, those that, that stature of, uh, of groups. And uh, I think they do a tremendous job and uh, we're hoping that, that we can follow their lead and, and, and through our association and through our, our NIDS training that uh, we can offer uh, some training in niche markets that really haven't been addressed before. And uh, we'll continue to do that and, and develop more programs as we go. How can our listeners get in touch with you and get further information? Uh, you can contact uh, us uh, through our website at www.nidstraining.com. That's N-I-D-S training.com. Or you can call us direct at area code 864-855-3400. Thank you for joining All us. All right. Yes, thanks for joining us, Kent. And we look forward to talking to you again down the road, hopefully, here. Well, great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you get a chance and you can stick around, I know you had a job come up. You may have to leave. But um, at the end of the show, we'd like to always bring everybody back if we can. But we certainly understand if you got to run. All right. Thank Thank you, you. Kent. All right. CJ, do we have a little uh, intro music for our next group here? We're going to uh, move IE Connections. What's news to next week, folks? Uh, We had a little problem there, but not, not a big deal. Let's go to guest number two. first rap song <laughs> i don't know i'm not sure i understand but i got the sample part anyhow all right what i'd like to do is um we're going to have a little round table with the ems environmental monitoring systems group here environmental monitoring systems is a worldwide provider of asbestos lead and indoor air quality products supplies and equipment they are a privately held group since the company's inception in 1994 EMS has emerged as an industry leader and is widely recognized for supplying clients with superior quality products and unparalleled customer support. The company's president, John L. Jordan Sr., has a keen vision for the future and believes that technical leadership makes product leadership possible. EMS employs the latest technologies and the highest quality materials to deliver some of the best products available in the industry today. Every product they manufacture is rigorously tested to ensure customers will obtain the most accurate results possible, and every product line they carry represents only the most respected manufacturers in the industry. We've actually got a a group of folks here today from the EMS uh, gang, and what we were fortunate enough to get, uh, actually, Johnny Jordan Jr. will be with us. Uh, We've got Jay Rucker also with us today 
We have, uh, I got my list here. Connie Young and Michael Knight. Connie Young and Michael Knight. Uh, Johnny is the, uh, I guess, the founder's son. We'll have to get into that in just a moment here, Cliff. But uh, are you all on the line? We're here, Jeff. All right. Excellent. Let's go around real quick, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Johnny, was I accurate? I'm, I'm pretty sure I was. You are the founder's son? That is correct, Josh. My father and I founded the company in 1994. Great. Well, welcome. And we've got uh, Jay Rucker and the rest of the sales group. Jay, you I, you and I, I know, go back a ways, and I've always enjoyed chatting with you and uh, working with you on equipment issues. Um, Jay, what area of the country do you cover? Uh, Joe, I, um, that was nice words, by the way. Uh, I enjoy working with you, too. But um, here, handle different territories, uh, primarily in the southeast and some up in the uh, mid Midwest. Uh, I get around a good many places. Great, great. And uh, maybe we can introduce Michael Knight as well. Michael, uh, do you have a special territory or a specialty area? Hey, Joe. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, some of the southeast as well and then out west, uh, including even uh, Hawaii and Alaska. So uh, it's, it's spread out for me as well. Very good. And Connie, Connie, I understand you've recently, uh, as my understanding, you haven't been, you're probably the newest member of this group. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about where you came from and uh, what you specialize in? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I've been here a little over a year. I have an extensive background in air filtration products, and I primarily cover the international market. Great. Well, welcome to all of you. Let's get started with some questions here. Um, You know, there's a lot of new technology that comes out, it seems like, every month for this industry. And I'm curious, how does EMS decide what the heck to carry and what to sell? You know, Joe, that's a tough question. I tell you, um, you we've always prided ourselves on delivering high-quality products to meet our customers' needs. Uh, We're dedicated to solving the problems and developing technologies and moving them into the marketplace. Uh, I don't know if you were the AIJC, but we had uh, we introduced six new products. One of them being a full slide spore trap with Positrack, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But basically, it, uh, it's a serial number that'll, that'll track completely through the uh, through the laboratory. So it's uh, you know we're, it's it's tough, but we uh, you know it's kind of what we do. We try to stay on top of the, the, the cutting edge. What products do you produce in house? You know, currently we produce actually hands on about 20 products that we produce here. Uh, you know, with those 20 products, we also put multiple kits together. Uh, just to give you a quick list without going into them, we have the complete Allergenco line. We have the Cyclex line of products, the Micro 5. We have a quick fix vaporizer, which has been around for a long time. We manufacture the EMS personal pump, the EMS rotary veins. We have several uh, ACPC pumps. We do an exam and air. Uh, and like I said, we you know we we kit a bunch of products. So we have a microscope field kits, and we have the um, we have some, you know a lot of our asbestos two pump asbestos kits. I'll tell you a funny story is that actually the product that most people know in the marketplace is a Megalite, um, and, and this is being distributed by a lot of our competitors as a you know dash light. They'll put their company letter like an E light or an A light, and uh, that was a that was actually a pump that we worked with Thomas Industry on for over two years to bring it to marketplace, and it's it's being used. You know, it's substantial pump in the market. So that's, uh, that's kind of a list of what we do, what we bring to market. When you're bringing or developing these products, what type of research and development, I guess more so the research, goes into you know getting the product from 
the idea stage to being ready to put on market. And I guess, Johnny, you'd be the best to tell us about that. Yeah, Joe, we, um, you know, we've always tried to be an you know, the innovation leader since the beginning. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's been tough for us. It's been a tough road, but we feel like now we've, we've finally come of age. You know, my sister's in-house with us now. She does a lot of our marketing, and, and you, you've probably seen the company really develop. Uh, you know, the first two or three years, it was my father and I, and then, and then Marilyn has come on board. And she uh, she has done a tremendous job putting us, you know, front and center. Our catalogs are you know, the best in the industry. Our websites are the best in the industry. You know, she, she they have she's hands-on with the salespeople to give them what they need. You know, that's important. As far And then, then what happens, you know, from my perspective, you know, I make sure from our sampling kits, our Microsoft field kits, that, you know, that, you know if, if we take our experience, and our contacts in the industry, we listen to our customers in a lab and they have a suggestion or they say, hey, what if we had? And, and we basically, we uh, from a simple, simple statement or idea, we choose those items that could be acquired, assembled, or made. You know, we then make prototypes. Uh, we test and retest, you know, field test. And then basically come out with a new, uh, new product. At that point, after launch, quality control is closely monitored, uh, the final product is introduced and matures, and we listen to our customers again, and then we take the best ideas and comments and we incorporate that into a uh, finished product. So that's kind of, it's a long process, but I tell you, it takes a group effort, you know, and then by the time it falls into the sales team hands, I mean, they, it, it's, it, it takes a, a team effort, and that's what, we're, that's what we're about. Do you also use outside, you know, uh, universities, etc., to validate some of the uh, claims that you make on some of the equipment? Absolutely, Joe. We probably spend in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand dollars testing our products, and everybody, you know, doesn't believe that. Uh, before before any of our products go out, they're tested, and we we use the University of Cincinnati. You've probably seen that in a lot of our literature. They they tested our products to begin with, and and we continue with them to this day. They they actually just finished and finished doing some testing on us, several products that we've introduced. So uh, we use, uh, you know, we do in-house testing, field testing. We have some customers that we rely on heavily, and then once it makes it to that stage, we send it to the universities for the finals. I bet Cliff wouldn't be surprised it costs three hundred thousand no, dollars to do that no, research. No, no, no. <laughs> what, no, no. To get a new uh, disinfectant on the market probably costs. Uh, oh yeah, easy. Easy. Uh, what is the most popular product that you actually sell? You talking with? Within our product line, yes, or mm-hmm. you know, right now by far the Allergen Code D is our most popular product. Allergen Code D. Let me just stop for a moment. I believe we've got our technical directors joined us. Doctor Wow, are you on the line? Yes, I am. All right, Dieter, welcome. Good to have you with us. We're talking with Johnny Jordan uh, here at EMS, and I know you've met Jay before, so um, oh sure, yes. Jump in if you have a question. And uh, we're talking a little bit about the allergen code D. Now, let me let me go back to Johnny for a moment. Maybe you could, uh, or one of your people could, uh, elaborate a little bit more on exactly what the allergen code D is for those that aren't familiar with it. Well, the allergen code D is basically, in layman's terms, a spore trap. Uh, it's, you know, it has a D50, a collection efficiency of about 1.5 micron. It's a slit impactor. And it's it's our latest well not our latest development but it's what probably our flagship for what we've uh, where we've been trying to head you know for years uh, you know we uh, it's it's it, it took a, again a group effort to put it all together but I think the people that are using it in the market realize that it is the best spore trap you know on the market today. What what was the reasoning behind 
developing a new spore trap? Uh, was it just something that you uh, had an interest in or did you see a need there? And has it been difficult to get people to change over? Well, you know, Joe, yeah, it, yes, it has been. I'll be honest, the, the market, uh, you know, we were, without mentioning names, we, we actually carried a, a spore trap for, for a good many years, and we, we realized there were some, some issues. And basically, when we started working with the University of Cincinnati, they told us that we had to produce a spore trap that had a collection efficiency or a D50 below 2.0 microns, not 2.5, but 2.0. And basically, in the, the samples, sample variants had to be less than, basically they wanted 20%. Um, what was in the market and what is in the market today does not qualify uh, for that. Now, I'm not going to speak for them on why they, they wanted those numbers, but that's where we had to go. And it, it, was, it was tough to begin with. And we started out with circular impactors. We actually we felt like the 360-degree chamber would give us better, a better representation of what was in the room or what was in the environment. Uh, the market did not uh, adhere to the round. It, it apparently, they felt like it was harder to analyze on the bigger bigger traces, the cyclic, you know, like a cyclic. Then we brought on the Micro 5, which had a, a smaller trace. Um, but with that, as, you know, as the company developed, we wound up with our own slit impactor, and we used all the knowledge and experience we had on our, our circular impactors and ingrained that into our slit. And now we, and that, that's where it actually came from. So to answer your question, yes, it's, it was, it's been a tough road for us. But, you know, now we have the allergy code D, and Things are really, really going well for us. Great. Cliff? You know, if I was totally unfamiliar with collections and cassettes and, and so on and so forth, can you just give me a very simple definition of what is, you know, what is a, cons what is a cassette and how does it work? You know, simply, basically, you take a vacuum pump, which is sucking air, and you connect any of these Spore traps, cassettes, even we give, even get into an asbestos uh, filter cassette. Uh, what those pumps do is they suck air across a membrane. And with, when, in reference to an asbestos cassette, you have a filter, so you would actually pull air across that filter membrane. You have to have a diffuser fil filter behind there that actually will help diffuse, and so you have a, you have a level concentration. On a spore trap, it's a little different. You have an adhesive, so you actually you can think of it almost like a flypaper where what you have to do is there's a combination, there's a couple of different variables in there to make them work. But what, what they do is it pulls air across a circle or slit, and it actually impinges or ingrains into the, the uh, adhesive. And that, that's it pretty much it in a nutshell. You just, you're just pulling air across, across either adhesive or either a filter. Okay, cool. I'm sure uh, later we'll, we'll bring Dr. Wild back on and get into a little more of the technicalities. But before uh, we go there, let's get a little of the basics on different types of sampling pumps. Are all sampling pumps, I mean, I've got a list here, fan-driven, rotary vane, diaphragm, linear. Can we get just a, a quick description? Let's start with the fan-driven sampling pump. Where is that used? What's it used for? How does it work? How much does it cost? <laughs> All right, well, I'm, Joe, I'm going to hit this one again because this is actually something I've worked on talking about with Thomas. Uh, you know, what, what we found out is you're right. It's rotary, diaphragms, linear. Um, you know, what, what most people don't understand is that a pump has to have flow and vacuum. You know, I've got pumps here that will pull 300 liters, but they have little or no vacuum. So what happens is when you come in to calibrate a pump, sometimes on these primary calibrators, they require a certain amount of back pressure, which is i.e. vacuum. And so you'll actually get a primary calibrator that will not will not respond correctly to a particular pump. 
Um, you know, what we, what we always try to say, when somebody's looking at a pump purchase, they need to think of every, for every application. These, pump, these uh, pumps are actually very specific for what they do. Um, you know, and that's why we have an office sales staff here that can answer any questions. And I, people need to use their resources. You know, if the company you're buying, for, buying from, whether it's us or somebody else, ask a bunch of questions. I'll ask you one. Uh, what is calibration? Why is it important? And what are the consequences of not doing calibration on a pump? Good question. Basically, calibration would be what you have to, no matter what type of sampling you're doing, you need to know how much air you're actually pulling across that filter. So what we do is we take a pump, we actually calibrate it, which means we determine the airflow. If it's pulling at 5 liters, 10 liters, or 15 liters. We have a primary calibrator, which this industry actually has never been defined, or I've never seen it defined. It's kind of the known is always about 1%. Then we have field rotometers, where if guys are actually out in the field, they'll use a, a rotometer that's accurate to about 3%. And what that does is they just guarantee that, that, that they're pulling, that whatever air, the amount of air they believe they're pulling, they actually will calibrate to ensure that, that they're pulling that. The reason it's important is because whenever they send their samples off to the laboratories, the laboratories will actually they'll have to tell them the flow rates and, or, or total flow rates. So that's why they have to calibrate and know what their pumps are actually pulling. And, Johnny, I'm curious, um, how often do, and maybe if somebody else wants to answer, that's fine. Um, there are other types of equipment, moisture meters, particle counters, etc. They all also need calibrated. And how often do they need calibrated? Can somebody touch on that? Yeah, Joe, I'll touch on that a little bit about calibration. Um, everything should be calibrated, and, and I get that question a lot, when should something be calibrated? And uh, I'd like to mention that it should be calibrated before every test. That's probably the wisest thing to do, but it's, it's also, you know, you get folks who say, well, I haven't used a pump for six months, and does it need to be calibrated? And, and again, to give them the same answer, I think it needs to be calibrated every time. Uh, it's kind of like... When do you put new tires on your automobile? It's, it's relative to how much the equipment's being used. Um, there currently is no standard as far as IQ sampling about sampling, or excuse me, calibrating before every sample, but uh, just to cover all your bases, I really think that um, it should be done in-house with a primary before every job, and then when you go out into the field, take a field rotometer and, and calibrate it when you're on site. Now, that would be for pumps, something like an instrument, uh, usually it's either a monthly or a yearly calibration because the electronics stay in calibration um, longer, per se, than a pump does. If I had two different types of pumps, let's say that I had a linear pump and I had a rotary vein pump, and I was using the same type of cassette, are the samples taken from different pumps comparable to one another? I, I mean, like, well, I, I mean, on a report. Would they be comparable, the, the, the data that I achieved? They would be. Well, if you calibrated those pumps, again, let's, I'll, I'll kind of throw a question or throw something back at you. If we were using an asbestos cassette, for instance, if I put an asbestos cassette on a linear pump, most linear pumps, the small ones that we use, can only pull about, about 12 liters of the PCM, and that'd be a phase contrast. <laughs> okay. Uh, before I get that to the siren, but anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that same motor vein, it has it has a little more vacuum, so it'll pull up. You know, got some of them pull 17, 18 liters. So, but but the question, to answer your question, yes, when those results, you calibrate both those pumps at let's just say 
seven liters, the results that go back, they are the same. That is correct. Okay, good. So it, it sounds like um, with the liters per minute you gave me, the I'm not sure what the allergen code D is recommended. What's the flow rate recommended on that one? 15 liters per minute. 15. So would you have to go to a, a rotary vein or a diaphragm type to get that 15 liters? No, sir. There's a lot more. Uh, you know, it gets back into, like, back pressure on the cassettes themselves. You know, the allergy code D, I think the aerosol, and, and a couple of the other ones on the marketplace, are, are there's virtually no restriction. So you, you can – and that gets into fan-driven. That's where you can use some fan-driven uh, pumps versus, like, an asbestos cassette that I, it, it takes the, the most that you can get out of an asbestos cassette out with, with just about any pump. It's about 18 liters per minute. I see. I see. Well, that's that's interesting. Now, you've been uh, expanding your line of remediation equipment as well, and I'm curious, what was the reasoning behind that, and how is that going? Uh, yes, this is Connie. Um, it was a natural progression for us to move from air sampling and monitoring into offering remediation products. Our customer base was expanding to include those performing remediation, so it was just simply a response to their needs. Um, I'd say it was definitely, it's worked out well and continues to expand as new products enter the market. What is the most requested piece of remediation equipment right now? You get a call from whomever. What, uh, what, what are they looking for? Well, that's hard to say because everything kind of works in conjunction with one another. Um, so we offer containment systems, HEPA vacuums, scrubbers, negative air machines, we also provide manometers, protective apparel, respirators, basically everything you'd need to put an area under negative pressure while monitoring and protecting those in that space. Uh, we also offer surface growth inhibitors and coatings. Okay. Uh, I get this question all the time. There's a concern that things are slowing down in the indoor air quality industry or the some mold remediation companies claim things are a little slow. In your experience as a company, how have things been going the last couple of years? Is it slowing down, growing, just bigger pie, but more people taking a piece of it? I'll answer that, Joe. This is Johnny. Um, you know, basically, I think you're right. For, from a product standpoint, that's what we are. We're a products company. We, you know, we don't do lab work. We, you know, we specialize in products. And, you know, you've seen several, several new companies start up. So, Strictly from the from our perspective, you know, there's there's more players in the market. Uh, you know, because of our diversification, we haven't noticed a downturn. I, I guess that the, what's your the rationale for the response is contributed just to the, you know the droughts in California, droughts in Florida, and also the downturn in the real estate market has probably hurt a lot of people. You know, we do IAQ, we do asbestos, we do lead, we have remediation. So you know, from our perspective, I don't know if you realize it or not, we just came into a um, Brand new building. We're you know we're sitting on probably what's to equivalent to uh, thirty thousand square feet of usable space. We brought most of our in-house molding. Now we do we do a ton of our assembly work right here. And uh, so no, we're thriving, and expanding. We're life life is good on this side. <laughs> good, that's good to hear. Um, there is what was the other? What was the next one we had? There, Chris? I actually Chris. was looking in the classes that Joe and I teach. People are always asking, how can they monitor the, the pressures within these containments in an affordable way? Not everyone has, you know, the income to be able to afford, you know, some of the more sophisticated 
metering devices that you know with the recorders, chart recorders, and so on and so forth. Which device would you recommend, and approximately how much does it cost? Well, there's a wide array of monitoring products. Uh, we have a small unit that starts around $35, so you don't have to spend a lot of money. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of sophisticated units that sell for well over $1,000. It really depends on the application and probably what's required. Uh, if you need to data log or download, or perhaps you need remote capabilities, audible alarms, things like that. So obviously there's a premium associated with that. But there are some small units that are under $100, so you don't have to spend a lot. Thank you. Well, and interestingly enough, we are uh, actually developing a very inexpensive model, so we should have something out in the near future. Great. I think there's a need for that on the market. It's tough. Uh, I train a lot of remediation contractors and pull out some of these uh, re differential pressure recorders, and they say, first question, how much? Uh, you know, and uh, so it's good to see that somebody's thinking in that, in that direction. I guess following up to what we talked about recently or just a moment ago about competition in the industry, what what do you do to uh, make yourself stand out above others in the industry, and how do you uh, how do you get your name to be the first one that pops into their mind when they go to look for equipment? We usually just hand that over to Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> that would be your sister. Is that your sister, Marilyn? Or? Wonderful job, Joe. I tell you, you've met Marilyn before. She. You know, she is such a large part of what we do here. You know, she, she is the image, and she's the person that, you know, a lot, a lot of late nights, a lot of hard work. So I would say that, you know, from, from her perspective, you know, these guys, the sales team, they, they get out there, they, you know, they knock on the doors, they, they make the calls, they do what they need to do. But, I mean, in a nutshell, we strive to be different. You know, we try to bring the new technology to the industry, good or bad. We, we try to stay on the cutting edge. You know, we try to we think outside the box. We make sure that our customers know that they're number one. You know, they, they are number one priority here, and we prove it to them every day. The biggest asset we have is our staff. Everybody here knows how important they are. You know, we try to work as a family. You know, we try to have fun. That's the big thing is we try to have fun, and I hope for everybody that calls in here that they, that, that they know that and it shows because that's, that's what's important to us, and I think it's what puts us ahead of everybody else in the industry. We, you know, we try hard. We have fun. You know, what's the working principle of a gas detection tube, and what gas detection tubes might be helpful as part of a routine indoor environmental inspection? Hey, this is Michael. Um, it's, you know, a gas tube uh, basically is, is air uh, being drawn into uh, a glass tube, and it's reacting with some sort of a reagent. Um, and this is a color change. Uh, that's going to occur based on uh, the concentration levels of that particular uh, gas that you're trying to detect. Um, some of the common ones I would say that are used uh, for IEQ investigations would be uh, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, or, or ozone. Thank you. Okay. Is there anything we uh have enjoyed this. We're getting a little short on time, and I want to bring Dr. Wild back in a moment, but is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add, any any of the four of you? And I, I really wish we had time to talk more about air scrubbers with Connie. If you want to add something on air scrubbers, I'd love it, Connie. Oh, 
Well, I could direct you, you know, to our website. We do offer a variety. We have negative air machines um, and, and scrubbers, and, and maybe we can talk about that more uh, in the future. Uh, there is kind of a distinct difference there between the two. But, um, you know, the most important thing, I think, is matching a piece of equipment to the job and helping people buy the right piece of equipment the first time. You don't want a piece of equipment that's too big for you, too cumbersome. You need to look at all the features. And there is a lot of things to consider when you're buying a negative air machine. But the best advice that I could give you is to um, consider the size of the space that you typically work in so that um, a company can help you pick the right piece of equipment for you. And currently, especially for the home remediator, there's a lot of smaller pieces of equipment. There's a lot now with the plastic coatings that are a lot easier and uh, more user-friendly. There's a lot of uh, bells and whistles, filter light indicators, et cetera, that can help you uh, really monitor your, the filter lights and make it really a simple device to use, but also obviously a very necessary one. All right. Well, thank you for that, Connie. And how can we, uh, our listeners actually, contact EMS? What's the website? Website, Joe, is www.emssales.net. That's two S's in there, E-M-S-S-A-L-E-S.net. Or just give us a call at 1-800-293-3003 and, you know, Anybody would be happy to answer any questions or help you. Great. Let's see if we can. Uh, do you have any uh, intro music? I think we finally got some intro music for Dr. Well, no, not this week. We'll, we'll figure it out sooner or later. Dieter, are you still on the line? Yes, I am. Great, great, Dieter. I know this is one of the subjects that you enjoy, uh, you know, the collection efficiencies and all that. I was wondering if you had any questions or comments. Uh, yes, and uh, I, I know that I talked with you about it. You know, I spent my. Yeah, the majority of my professional life with particles and inhalation and deposition of particles in the lung and on impaction devices. And uh, there's nothing wrong with working with uh, the University of Cincinnati. I don't know whether Klaus Willeke is still there. I happen to look at a book of his, which he signed for me. And Klaus and I and a couple of other of my colleagues from the University of Pittsburgh, we know each other. I can talk to Klaus in German. <laughs> so so <laughs> he's very good. <laughs> now he, is, he is a top-notch aerosol man. There's no question about that. And there are a couple of items that, that I have been questioning before. And it was mentioned over here. When we talk about uh, collection efficiency, we use that 50% cutoff as the one that we advertise. That means that 49.999 of the particles go past it. And I wish I were back at the University of Pittsburgh. I wish that I had a couple of students whom I could use and be in my laboratory. They are very simple experiments you can do. You could use any collector, run it with a calibrated airflow, whatever pump you are using. I listen to that. All of the above is fine. If I know it's 15 uh, liters per minute for a certain cassette, and then put behind it, and we have those available, an absolute filter. I can use a Teflon filter or a millipore filter where literally I get 99.999%. And I can incubate, I use it sterile, I can incubate that. Now I know whether that gadget in front of me, whether it's an, yeah. 
any one of the above that was mentioned, Alagenco, um, um, uh, uh, all of these devices, they are all impact devices. Now you know what is behind it. Where is that 50% cutoff? You can also determine whether you have losses in the line. I have been mentioning that. I said, well, I take a, a sample behind a wall with a wall check. Now you have at least 12 inches of, hydro, <laughs> of charged Tygon tubing. Are there losses in there? You better believe uh, there are losses. Has anybody uh, measured it? No, we have not. So there are question marks over there. This is still relatively young. I was around when we were measuring air pollution with filters and impactors. Um, the PM10 and the PM5 and the PM2.5, we did that on top of the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. So there are a ton of issues out there which I would like to see being answered. And I don't, th I don't think there is enough interest out there. I better shut up because we are running short. Uh, that's fine, Dieter. Uh, Johnny, I, I'm just curious, Have you? Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add? I do, real quick. Um, I, you know, basically, just to, we, we have tested our products that way. Uh, Sergey Grishman up at the University of Cincinnati, which, is, and to answer your question, Qualtz is no longer with the University of Cincinnati. He's, he's since moved on. I think he still has a, a very big presence there, but he's not... Yeah. Well, he is my age, has gray hair, hair and is allowed to retire <laughs> and finally have some fun. <laughs> I don't think he's retired, but I think he's still active in the market. But, um, no he, kidding. He, he, is, he is aware of our products. But, what, you know, to give you a, on our products, basically all of our products, the B50, are, are below, you know, we, we try to stay at 1.5 and below. And, and the last statement we got from the University of Cincinnati was basically respectfully, it says, making them fully effective at trapping all fungal spores and even some bacteria. We've also, we also did the research to find out how much of, you know, when you say the uh, charged uh, tubing. Sure. We, we, we did research on that to find out how much of it was actually being, and took that into account. So we, we, uh, we went that extra step, like you were saying. Most people don't care, but, but we do. Well, you know, I do not expect a, 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 a mold investigator, regardless of background and education, to be an expert on uh, particle signs, whether it's, you know, aerodynamic equivalent diameters or whatever else it is, or bacteria or molds or, for that matter, viruses. But um, I, I, I would like to see a better effort by the universities and their students and their laboratories who are equipped as such to to do the research and 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 publish the research, go to the conventions and uh, participate and uh, disseminate the information. If you do good research and you don't publish it, it doesn't help me. I need to, uh, Joe. Can you make sure that we swap email addresses? Absolutely. Actually, we can, Dater. If you don't mind, let's put it on the air. What's your What's your email? Oh, Folks. that's very simple. My last name, which is W E Y E L, one one at aol dot com. Wonderful. And I'll uh, I'll shoot you an email with some of the information that I have. Sure. And I answer some of your questions. Great. We can maybe uh, talk about it down the road on a future show. That, that would be wonderful. Well, I want to thank all of uh, the EMS gang we were calling you uh, here earlier in the day trying to for uh, joining us. I know it was a, a last-minute kind of thing. We really appreciate all of you coming on. Just want to real quickly one more time say 
thank you to Johnny Jordan for joining us here, Jay Rucker, Michael Knight, and Connie Young from the EMS gang. And uh, we will uh, look forward to talking to all of you again down the road. I also want to say thanks to uh, our other guest from this week, Mr. Kent Berg from the NIDS Training National Institute of Decontamination Specialists. You didn't get me, CJ. Good. And, of course, uh, special thanks to my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure. Sir. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and cyber jockey, CJ Zach Slotnick. Of course, Joe. It's always great to be here. Zach, please, uh, if we wouldn't mind, do a quick rundown of our sponsors again, if you wouldn't mind. We also want to... Always remember our sponsors. Absolutely. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, a newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment, equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions. DRI-EAZ.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Back to you, Joe. All right. And, of course, we'd also like to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Without you, IAQ Radio wouldn't exist. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.